Hi, Christian Jordanov here. Thanks for tuning in. Today I want to talk to you about serotonin. It is not the happy neurotransmitter, the happy chemical. It's all marketing and bullshit and propaganda. Serotonin is not good for you, at least too much of it, right? We need some for various bodily functions, as, as with similarly with cortisol or estrogen or histamine. But as we know with cortisol, and I'll be talking a lot about that in the future, um, cortisol in high amounts leads to disease, uh, as I'm actually I'm going to be writing in my upcoming book, which I am working hard on at the moment. Hopefully early next year it will be out. Really excited about that. But along along this <clears throat> research, the serotonin stuff is really fascinating me. <clears throat> and I really wanted to share at least a little bit of it. Now, there's hundreds of studies I have that I have not read. And there's just not enough time in the day to actually really dig deeply into it. But I'm going to give you the cliff notes, right? What is serotonin? What can it do? Um, what... Uh, is it an upper or a downer, right? We can talk about SSRIs and the selective publication of antidepressant research, right? We can talk about what um, serotonin antagonists do and the drugs on the market that do that and what, what they're actually used for. You'll be surprised. And a lot of other things in between. This uh, I'm going to try and keep it you know, 40 minutes or so, because I could probably talk about this for hours, just based on the notes I have right now that I've scribbled together and the, some of the studies that I've kind of taken notes from. So let's kind of start, right? So uh, it's a neurotransmitter, right? You probably know that. But what you might not know, and you can read this, it's nothing controversial here. You can read this on Wikipedia, right? This is from Wikipedia. I just took some snippets, listen to this, again, from Wikipedia. This, this is, these are comments or other extracts from the article on Wikipedia about serotonin. So, besides mammals, serotonin is found in all bilateral animals, including worms and insects, as, as well as fungi and plants, right? So, this is a very primordial chemical right? It's not just humans or mammals that express it. It's in fungi and plants, right? It's a signaling hormone, if, if we could call it that, in plants and fungi, right? It's interesting that serotonin is one compound of the poison contained in stinging nettles. When you, get, when you touch a stinging nettle, as we did when we were kids, that sort of redness and irritation and, and, and itching and, and sort of pain sensation that was in part because of serotonin and probably a lot because of histamine release. Serotonin present in insect venoms and plant spines serves to cause pain, which is a side effect of serotonin injection. Serotonin is produced by pathogenic amoeba, causing diarrhea in the human gut. The gastrointestinal parasite Entamoeba histolytica secrete serotonin, causing a sustained secretory diarrhea in some people. Patients infected with Entamoeba histolytica have been found to have highly elevated serum serotonin levels, which returned to normal following resolution of the infection. Entamoeba histolytica also responds to the presence of serotonin by becoming more virulent. This is crazy stuff. I, this was mind-boggling for me because I, I only know this information basically a few months and um it was hard to accept at first and i'll tell you why because we were myself and my wife we were using 5-htp 5-hydroxytryptophan which is a supplement you can buy and i'm sure some of you have used it it's a precursor to serotonin so don't ask me why but we were taking it and it was helping my wife with her sleep and I would sometimes take it, and but I, I experiment with so many different supplements. I, I wasn't married to it or anything, but it was all uh, because as much as medicine 
and the pharma industry are pushing this uh, scam that serotonin is the happy chemical. The same thing is going on in the natural health circles. Most people are like, we need to raise our serotonin. You know, let's raise our serotonin. We will feel good. It's the feel good hormone or whatever. And it's it's kind of not. It's actually like let's continue on the Wikipedia article. Serotonin is a common component of invertebrate venoms, salivary glands, nervous tissues, and various other tissues across mollusks, insects, crustaceans, scorpions, and various kinds of worms and jellyfish. In plants. Serotonin synthesis seems to be associated with stress signals, right? Which actually is what it appears, serotonin appears to be a stress signaling chemical in the human body. This is what kind of my research into it, as I'm starting to make more sense of um, the, the, the information, that's what it seems like serotonin becomes elevated in us during some type of stress or some type of period of stress, right? More, again, more snippets from Wikipedia. This There is a very delicate balance between physiological role of gut serotonin and its pathology. There's a de- very delicate balance between physi- physiological role of gut serotonin and its pathology, meaning a little bit too much and it becomes patho genic or pathological um, and what's interesting just as an aside <clears throat> is you might not know this most people don't i don't think know this but 90 percent of the serotonin is made in the gut right there's these cells in the gut called enterochromaffin cells and they will secrete serotonin depending on if a uh, threat or stress is perceived, that threat can be gut irritation. It could be some food. So it could be endotoxins, um, various pathogens. They can kind of uh, activate certain receptors. And that will, one of the roles of increasing serotonin in those instances is because it's, it's used in gut motility. So more serotonin means more gut motility. So you you can have literally just very quick explosive diarrhea get whatever the hell is irritating your gut out of you that's kind of one of the one of the ways in which it can be protective the problem is what what's going on right now a lot of people's guts are messed up because of terrible food you know chemicals in the food glyphosate um uh, this uh, antibiotic use to eating too much fiber with all this another <laughs> scam being perpetrated with marketing the fiber is so good for you our ancestors ate so much fiber you gotta eat 100 grams of fiber and jesus christ so there's many ways um that we are actually increasing serotonin production coupled with the fact that many of us also have increased intestinal permeability aka leaky gut and when you have more serotonin being produced in the gut and leaky gut a lot of that serotonin can actually end up in the bloodstream and then it becomes obviously it it can get it can get into the the central nervous system the brain and then it can exert it, its effects there and those effects do not seem to be good uh, when you actually think about it um ser- the, uh, about one percent of serotonin is made in the brain of all the serotonin in the body so there's probably a reason for that and Tryptophan, the amino acid precursor to serotonin, is the rarest amino acids um, amino acid in food. So if you take protein, like from meat, from beans, if you want to call that protein even, um, from any s- source, or even your essential amino acid supplement, tryptophan will always be the lowest on the list of amino acids, right? And then you don't absorb all of it because of there's there's various different ways um, its absorption gets blocked by other. I think it was the large neutral amino acids, so uh, branch chain amino acids. Um, I think certain uh, tyrosine, phenylalanine, 
certain larger amino acids can actually block its absorption, even if you do ingest a lot of it with your food. Um, uh, not a lot actually gets to to be absorbed. In fact, when I used to take, uh, I mean, I didn't take them along a lot, but I had one, I bought one pack of tryptophan, again, the, the precursor amino acid to serotonin. So you can buy it as an amino acid. Don't buy it as, an, as a supplement. Um, but I, I remember learning that if you want the tryptophan to be absorbed, you want to take something like, let's say, a glass of orange juice. What that does is it increases insulin that causes whatever in the bloodstream to be uptaken by the, ce- by the cells. That includes glucose, obviously, but also amino acids. So when you do that, and then after that, you take the tryptophan, there's no, there's no other competing amino acids, and you're much more likely to absorb the tryptophan. And obviously... <laughs> I'm not. Don't try this at home. It's not a good idea. I wouldn't recommend tryptophan or 5-HTP. And I've actually, although myself and my wife did take it, I'm proud to say at least I never recommend it to any of my clients ever. And but I was, uh, uh, <laughs> I was actually considering it with a client or two over the summer. Uh, luckily, I, I stumbled on this uh, research and some some guys that are, you know. I've been talking about it for actually for a long time. And uh, luckily, we uh, dodged that bullet. That's not to say it would have created a problem, but it, it can just, it's kind of, it looks like um, <clears throat> like um, an apathy type of hormone or neurotransmitter. Not It doesn't sim- stimulate joy or um, well-being. It's more like apathy and it can kind of, that can actually be be helpful at times because if you're depressed over uncontrollable circumstances and you add serotonin, let's say, or you, you let's say they put you on antidepressant, you can potentially then become apathetic. The fact you can't do anything about these things, then at least you can start focusing on other things that you have control over and that can actually improve your life in some way. But it, this is all in a very perverse way helpful right which is very similar to how the, a lot of these drugs and especially these ssris work right and we'll get to that in a little bit we just see how we are for time 12 minutes ah oh, jeez i haven't even gone through the freaking what is serotonin list from um wikipedia listen to this now this is this is where it gets interesting this is again not controversial from wikipedia some serotonergic agonist drugs cause fibrosis anywhere in the body Particular, particularly the syndrome of retroperitoneal fibrosis as well as cardiac valve fibrosis. So let me just read the first part. Some serotonergic agonist drugs, so drugs that increase serotonin or its uptake or whatever, cause fibrosis anywhere in the body. And then the final point here. Despite its long stand, despite its long standing prominence in pharmaceutical ad- advertising, the myth that low serotonin levels cause depression is not supported by scientific evidence. Whoa! <clears throat> so, so pharmaceutical advertising, the myth that low serotonin levels cause depression is not not supported by scientific evidence. Like that just boggles the mind that people are being put on this poison as we speak. Okay, well, it's a Saturday right now. So maybe not, not too many people are going to the doctor on a Saturday. But this last week past, probably thousands of people were put on serotonin. You know, or SSRI, sorry. In fact, I was looking at some data, right? There was a um, website called CCRHINT. Hold on, let me just tell you. It's called the website, or it's an association. So Citizens Commission on Human Rights International, the mental health industry watchdog, right? People over profit, action against abuse. So they have the stats on how many people in the USA are on SSRIs, and I just pulled up 
the numbers from 2020, people of all ages, 45 million Americans are on freaking antidepressants. That was in 2020. God knows how many were put on antidepressants in the last three years. I'm sure a lot, a lot. And by the way, out of those uh, 45 million in 2020, 2 million of those were under the age of 18, 0 to 17, right? So tra like just travesty um, crimes against humanity, all these words barely do, do justice to the amount of damage perpetrated by the medical system and it's you know it's the at the end of the day i know these doctors fell into this and it's it, they, they were in, well intentioned in the beginning but these people are causing gr grievous harm to literally tens of millions of people just in the usa alone never mind looking at the numbers worldwide and this is serious serious criminal negligence and you know what this is just ssris let's not even get on the statins, the um, the all the estrogen, different things with uh, premenopausal women, you know, young girls as as young as eleven being put on them, you know, uh, postmenopausal women being put on, just maiming and, and and hurting women with these drugs. But this is just unbelievable. If you if stuff like this doesn't get you angry, you know, I don't know what will, right? So the what serotonin can do in the body is actually, like I already mentioned from Wikipedia, it can cause fibrosis. And it's actually very well known that it can drive fibrosis in the skin and, and the organs, right? And actually, in organs, fibrosis, which is basically like scarification, laying down of collagen fibers, um, it's a kind of like a scarification of the organ, right? From what I understand, this is a precursor state to cancer developing in organs. You cannot have cancer without an initial uh, fibrosis uh, stage, right? So this is this is actually a, a very nice business model. If you, someone comes to you, they're a bit unhappy because, you know, they lost their job because they, they don't want to get uh, an experimental procedure performed and then they're not happy about that and maybe they're struggling now with... Uh, you know, paying the bills and they've been stuck stuck at home for months watching depressing news and whatever else and where the world is going and their kids are being, you know, told that men can get periods and stuff. And you go to the doctor needing need some help, they stick you on one of these SSRIs and then it starts creating fibrosis over time and then five to ten years down the line, you have a bunch of other different health problems that cannot really be traced back to the initial poison because they're smart enough if it killed if these interventions killed people immediately or within a few weeks people even the the most blind people would see that so they're smart that the damage happens slowly right so 5 10 15 years down the line maybe 15 years is too much but 5 to 10 years down the line they want you coming back they want they need repeat repeat customers we can't just fix your your mood and that that'd be the end of it right you gotta come back and we need lifetime customers so high uh, other this is from from studies now high levels of serum serotonin are predictive of an increased risk for hip fracture uh non-vertebral vertebral non-vertebral osteoporotic fracture and incident <coughs> excuse me and incident fractures among older men so you know predictive and increased risk for rib fracture if you have high ser serum serotonin by the end of the 1950s it was widely accepted that migraine headaches and associated symptoms including nausea and visual disturbances were caused by an excess of serotonin and anti-serotonin drugs of various types were being used for treatment. So in the 50s, which is kind of, yeah, I think it was in the in 1950 or so when they discovered serotonin, 
The first name for it was enteromin because it was discovered in the gut. So in entera, entero, gut. Um, <clears throat> so they were they were doing a lot of cool stuff with anti-serotonin drugs, and some of these are still on the market, and we'll cover a couple of them in a bit. But <clears throat> here's another thing. However, too much extracellular serotonin in the intestinal lining is harmful and can cause irritable bowel syndrome characterized by symptoms of pain, diarrhea, constipation, indigestion, bloating, and headache. So too much serotonin in your intestine can cause irritable bowel syndrome. This is unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. Because a lot of, even a lot of functional and natural practitioners will be like, no, irritable bowel syndrome, it's probably pathogens and stuff. And it, there could be an aspect to it of pathogens, sure, because again, like I explained earlier, they can cause serotonin release. But we the role of serotonin hasn't really been at the forefront. It seems like a couple of studies are done decades ago. Everything, they, they go with it, as it were. We just go with it. And they start uh, citing those studies, and then the the the, the research uh, cites previous research, and then you do a meta analysis on all that research and systematic reviews, and so you just kind of in this little echo chamber you're you're perpetuating, and then like with the cholesterol stuff, there was one study that was cited a million by a million other papers since you know I think it was the 60s or 70s when it was done, and you know, that study was bunk. That study was BS. And a million researchers up until the you know early 2000s were, it's like you're, if I, if I swap two numbers, like let's say five is four and four is, is five, and I, I teach you as a child this number system, forever, you will be getting math problems incorrect and all your assumptions about the world are would be wrong some of it will be right but you will make grievous errors in your calculations right so a lot of these uh, young phd's and doctors they're given this stuff they they're just force fed this after years of indoctrination and they just perpetuate it you know and it takes people like a guy called paul andrews who is was at the time of this paper um, in 2015? He was assistant professor, Department of Psychology, Neuroscience and Behavior at McMaster University. So this is this is a quote from this Paul Andrews guy. Nearly all commonly prescribed antidepressant medications perturb serotonin, an ancient chemical that is found in plants, fungi, and animals. In recent work published in Frontiers in Psychology, we have found that antidepressant medications have adverse health effects on every major process in the body, regulated by serotonin, including mood, attention, neuronal growth and death, reproductive functioning, electrolyte balance, digestive functioning, platelet activation, and the clotting process. And these are big, just to interject, these are big things, you know, reproductive functioning, clotting process, <clears throat> you know, getting a blood getting a blood clot is a very serious thing, digestive function, uh, mood, attention, neuronal growth and death, so neuro, neuro, neuronal health. So uh, continuing the quote, by interfering with numerous adaptive processes, antidepressants appear to degrade the overall functioning of the body. In the elderly, antidepressant use is associated with an increased risk of death, the magnitude of which is arguably greater than the risk of cardi cardiac events caused by the painkiller Vioxx. Such evidence suggests that antidepressants do more harm than good. And this is, again, Assistant Professor, Department of Psychology, Neuroscience and Behavior, Paul Andrews at McMaster, university so i mean the fact is they're still prescribing them the doctors will be probably prescribing them for the next 
at least two decades. Um, that that's a very, I guess, conservative estimate from from kind of my point of view. Uh, I'd say twenty, thirty years at least. They'll they'll keep even as more evidence comes up and more doctors speak out and PhDs speak out. They'll continue doing it. So marketing at the end of the day. It's the a lot of this research. Who's gonna read it? You know, it's read by a very small number of people that can easily be silenced if they need to be. Right. So if you're, if 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 um your boss in your university tells you we won't publish your, your paper because this and that you you might you might fight to publish it, but most people with a job and kids and whatever else, and they want to progress their career, they will do what what they're told. You know. They will tow the party line. Um, there is a thing called a post-SSRI sexual dysfunction. Not sure if you if you ever heard of that one, but that's a thing. So there's a lot of terrible things that happen if you increase serotonin um, chronically in the body. But so, this is another study I stumbled upon um, a few weeks ago. It's it's called. Pharmacology of serotonin and female sexual behavior. Now, this blew my socks off. Just three snippets from the study, right? Basically, these are quotes from the study, <clears throat> direct. Although findings were not always consistent, the bulk of evidence supported the hypothesis that compounds that increase serotonin reduced female sexual behavior and compounds that decreased serotonin facilitated sexual behavior. Most antidepressants can produce sexual dysfunction in human females, but SSRIs are associated with the highest incidence and the most prevalent, pre prevalent complaint following SSRI treatment is related to low sexual desire and satisfaction. There is little doubt that pharmacological manipulations leading to alterations in the serotonergic system can influence female sexual behavior in a variety of species, including humans. And that kind of that kind of blows your mind, right? So why <clears throat> why are they being pushed so much when there's so many other different ways to go about treating depression, not through the just through the serotonergic system? You can increase dopamine, you can block serotonin, um, you can block a bunch of different things, you can increase certain neurochemicals, other neurochemicals in the in the brain. So there's so many there's so many different ways, but they somehow they picked this one. And when when you read, I don't know, I don't know how many of you listening are um here after you know seeing me on a Charlie, Charlie Robinson's podcast or Sam Tripoli's podcast or some other kind of podcast where we talk about conspiracies and stuff. So if you are coming from those podcasts, I, I don't think I need to even explain when I tell you these guys in the study are reporting. Although findings were not always consistent, the bulk of evidence supported the hypothesis that Compounds that increased serotonin reduced female sexual behavior and compounds that decreased serotonin in facilitated sexual behavior. Now, a lot of that research is done in animals, but, you know, there's there's a lot that can be extrapolated from animal research. We share the same genes, uh, organs, uh, uh, biochemical things. So it's interesting, right? Why, why, would, why would something that reduces female sexual behavior and potentially the plebs increasing their numbers, why would that become so popular as a treatment? I'll let the listener decide, a.k.a. you. So this <clears throat> Paul Andrews guy, that assistant professor in the Department of Psychology I mentioned, he, and, and, uh, he published a paper in, again in 2015 called Is Serotonin an Upper or a Downer? The evolution of the serotonergic system and its role in depression and the antidepressant response. Now, <clears throat> listen to so just a few. It's a, it's it's very technical, but just a couple of um, uh, quotes from that paper. 
if you want to look it up, it, just type in Google or DuckDuckGo, whatever. Is serotonin an upper or downer? Basically, here is the here is the one of the quotes from that uh, that paper. The best available evidence appears to show that there is more serotonin being released and used during depressive episodes, not less. Sorry, this is from an article um, about that paper. So basically, they hypothesized in the paper three things: that serotonin is elevated in multiple depressive phenotypes, including melancholia. They, they're saying in that paper that serotonin, rather than being the happy uh, neurotransmitter, it's a, that that whole system evolved to regulate energy. So it's an energy regulator. And by increasing the extracellular cellular serotonin, SSRIs, which I should have said what they are, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the quote-unquote antidepressants, just for those that don't know. So by increasing in extracellular serotonin, SSRIs disrupt energy homeostasis and often worsen symptoms during acute treatment. So they can actually uh, make you feel worse in the initial stages of treatment. And that's why a lot of people commit suicide or some type of um, crime or violent act uh, during the initial stages of this SSRI treatment. And their third claim in their hypothesis in that paper is that symptom reduction is not achieved by the direct pharmacological properties of SSRIs, but by the brain's compensatory responses that attempt to restore, restore energy homeostasis. These responses take several weeks to develop, which explains why SSRIs have a therapeutic delay, if you can even call it that. It's like, I'm trying to think of, a, of an analogy for what this is, right? So let's say you have a toothache and it's kind of sucks. You can't concentrate, you can't sleep, and so on, right? So um, I start punching you in the stomach and I'll punch you in the stomach for a while and then, you know, I keep punching in the stomach and that kind of sucks, but you, you forget about your toothache because the, the punching in the stomach all the time is now a much bigger problem for you. So, it's hard to, it's, it's really a, a torturous, perverted way of, so the only reason these SSRIs seem to show a thera any therapeutic value is because they, they mess with your uh, serotonin, they mess with the energy regulation, and then over the weeks, the, the brain compensates for this extra serotonin, and that's somehow, it's like uh, almost, if you do torturous exercise for weeks and weeks, eventually you will probably adapt to it and be able to do it. Like, I remember when I was a kid, like 15, and we went uh, with, my, with my friend to work on the building sites, and in, in Spain, in the big heat, and the first month we were just like dying every day, working like lifting heavy things and stuff. By the third month in the summer, you know, I, I could lift a, a whole bag of 50 kilogram bag of cement on my own, put it in, in like the, um, wherever I need to put it. But it, whereas three months earlier, two, two of us couldn't lift that same bag, you know? So um, just through, through just the pain and suffering where the body has no choice but to adapt, we adapted and this this similar this is like a similar thing here you know you're giving this poison and eventually the the brain somehow and the body somehow adapts to it and you feel better but you you've been feeling worse initially so i don't even know like what in the hell who in the hell allowed this stuff and why why are people allowing this stuff to happen um what what else wait i wanted to say something else i forgot god <sighs> yeah, yeah. So actually, some of the um, SSRIs, I think Prozac, which is fluoxetine, I think that one has a slight dopamine agonist effect. So it actually, the relief you feel is, or, or I, I think it's either a dopamine agonist 
or uh, it is a blocker of certain serotonin receptors. So either of that, either of those will actually give you. Um, so let me see. So dopamine transporter. So uh, I th- I think. I think maybe it blocks a couple of the serotonin receptors. So that blocking some certain serotonin receptors can actually give you relief. But the fact that it's increasing serotonin peripherally over time is causing a lot of problems for the person and potentially fibrosis, actually physical problems. Never mind, you know, sexual dysfunction. Uh, problem sleeping, God knows what else can happen. It, it just everybody will vary depending on how much other stress hormones are playing um, uh, a role. For example, serotonin will raise cortisol. So if if you have a problem with excess cortisol, that can actually that that can cause violence, psychosis. That can cause um, uh, sleep problems, all ma- high blood sugar, all manner of problems. Right. So it's it's kind of pretty pretty disgusting and perverse the way they give you relief and then they cause further problems down the line you know it's pretty sickening let's see uh what else so pharmacology of serotonin serotonin uh what did i okay five wait i had more points okay so then then we have the the selective publication of antidepressant trials and its influence uh wait Sorry, sorry, I'm all over the place. I I took a nap before I did this episode, so... Okay, so basically there's selective publication in in the antidepressant research, right? There was a paper, part of... I I have the partial name. It's called Selective Publication of Antidepressant Trials and Its Influence on Apparent Efficacy uh, of Antidepressants, or something along those lines. Sorry about this. Yeah, yeah. Selective publication of antidepressant trials and its influence on apparent efficacy. So basically, when you do a, a study in the USA, you register it with the FDA, and then it's your prerogative after the study is done whether to actually publish it in a journal. And these researchers looked at basically... There were 74 FDA FDA registered studies. Sorry, sorry. My bad, my bad. They, how many was it? Okay, yeah. 70, there were seven. So between 1987 and 2004, in that period of quick math, quick math, Jesus Christ. Sorry, this is um, mathematics is not my 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 good side. I, I will admit that readily. So, seventeen years in that seventeen year year period, there was seventy four FDA registered studies on twelve antidepressant agents involving around twelve thousand five hundred patients. So out of those 74 FDA-registered studies, 31% of them were not published. So about a qu- in terms of the study participants, it was about almost th- 3,500 study participants. So about <clears throat> a quarter in terms of study participants of the data was not published in those 17 years of research. Now imagine you're a doctor and you're only seeing part of the picture because according to the researchers that published this paper, studies viewed by the FDA as having negative or questionable results were, with three exceptions, either not published, 22 studies, or published in a way that in our opinion conveyed a positive outcome, 11 studies. So they either were not published or they were published in a way that show the positive outcome, even though in these folks' uh, opinion, it was actually a negative outcome. Now imagine you're a busy doctor with maybe like 
uh, a family, a couple of kids, whatever else. You want to go play golf and do whatever you want to do on the weekends. You just maybe read some meta-analysis or, you you know, you might, if you're a psychiatrist, you read the studies, but you don't have time to go digging through the FTA databases and see what was published, what wasn't published. Very few people have the desire, time, uh, and whatever else to, to do this kind of research. So according to the published literature, it appeared that 94% of the trials conducted were positive. That's what you see. If you're a doctor, let's say in 2006, let me, let me see, are these antidepressants I'm giving to my patients effective, safe and effective? You read all the literature in the past 20 years or so, and you're like, wow, look at this. Maybe a meta-analysis will show 94% of the trials conducted were positive. You're like, oh my God, this is safe and effective. I'm gonna be um <laughs> I'm gonna be prescribing this like hotcakes. Everybody come get your SSRI. You have you have a five year old kid? Oh it was a bit sad two days ago. Let's put it on an SSRI. I mean literally they're putting kids on these SSRIs. And it's only I I I mean I I'm I shouldn't even laugh because this is absolute tragedy. The, the crime beyond criminal beyond evil what's 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 happening you know so yeah and then by contrast to those 94% of the trials conducted were positive if you looked at the full picture and analyzed that it was more like 51% of the trials were positive so that's there's a very serious publication bias in general in in science so we can't we can't really trust only the research right we we have this sort of saying, we should be evidence-based, but not evidence-limited because there might be an evidence base for drugs and uh, you know certain interventions. But if there's no incentive to, to test something that cannot be patented, like um, a vitamin, let's say, if there's no incentive to, to run trials on that and promote that and market that as, a, as an effective thing for whatever, then there won't be any much or any publications on that. So there's no evidence base, but that doesn't mean we should completely exclude those things because there is no evidence base. So we, we have to be very careful, you know. Um, God, you know what? Like this, hold on a second. 42 minutes i said i'll keep it to 45 minutes or so there's so much so much to talk about here but apparently uh, uh, in 1951 52 a guy called john gadam observed that lsd blocked the effects of serotonin so in, apparently in smaller doses and actually uh, uh a couple of guys montanari and tonini they were testing Gadam's idea of antagonism between LSD and serotonin in humans. They, they found that intramuscular injections of serotonin antagonize the psychological effects of LSD. So in um, smaller doses, LSD is what, I, what they're calling um, an approximate serotonin antagonist. And I, I believe in higher doses where it become serotonergic that is what is actually responsible for the hallucinations but in smaller doses they found that it's um it's an antagonistic to um serotonin and they they they've done experiments in soldiers in the 60s they saw that soldiers on LSD were defiant unruly difficult to control um they were just were not really what you want from soldiers and probably that's one of the reasons why um you know this this research into ssris with the opposite effect so increasing serotonin really kind of they upped the ante and by the 90s you know they were really pushing them because we, a lot too much serotonin or, or a lot of serotonin it kind of it kind of puts you almost in a hibernation state it kind of zombifies people, and I, I, I don't want to be derogatory to people suffering from depression. But uh, you know, I 
knowing some people on SSRIs, you know, you know how it is. Like the the highs are lower, the the lows aren't as low, so it's kind of a compressed state where you don't experience really joy, but you don't experience you know severe sadness or other anguish. So, I mean, that can sometimes be better than the reality you're in. But you know, there's a lot of other ways. There's a lot of other ways that you know you can improve the health of the individual because at the end of the day depression there's there's things we know are are causative or contributory to depression right so it can be endotoxin in the gut so gut dysfunction in fact people that are injected with i actually have a study on this i was going to do an episode uh people that get injected with endotoxin which is a bacterial frag cell wall fragment they they're they very quickly exhibit uh, symptoms of depression, uh, reduced cognitive um, ability and stuff like that. So that's an, that's one thing, reduced energy in the brain, um, certain reduction of certain neurosteroids that, uh, or repletion of those neurosteroids that can actually be, um, has been shown to improve um, the depressive states. So there's a lot that can be done, you know. Um, I think I'll, I'll stop here because my voice is starting to crack and I do have to work on the book, but I I do want to put more episodes out in the coming months as I'm building up to the book launch because there's just a, I'm finding a lot of interesting research about the topics of the book, which are, it will be all health-related. Um, there won't be any of this stuff in there, but I wanted to share this because it's, I wanted to get it off my chest Basic summary, serotonin is <clears throat> not the happy chemical. You shouldn't be trying to raise your serotonin, right? Actually, what something I did want to say is we have there's quite a few drugs on the market that are uh, uh, serotonin antagonists. And I'll tell you, listen, this is just mind-blowing. Mind if you want the fullest, go on Wikipedia and type serotonin antagonist and start reading about some of these. But listen to this one. There's one called ritanserin. Um, so this is a serotonin antagonist medication described as an anxiolytic, helps with anxiety, antidepressant, anti-Parkinsonian, and anti-hypertensive agent. So far, so good. It was chiefly investigated as a drug to treat insomnia, especially to enhance sleep quality by significantly increasing slow-wave sleep by virtue of potent and concomitant 5-HT2A and 5-HT2C antagonism. So those are serotonin um, receptors that it antagonizes. So, I mean, guys, let me just repeat some of this so this drug is a serotonin antagonist that is described as helping anxiety depression parkinson's disease and high blood pressure and it was treated uh, uh chiefly investigated to treat insomnia so if you're blocking serotonin and you're helping sleep is serotonin helping you sleep? If you, you're blocking serotonin and you have less anxiety, is serotonin helping your anxiety? Likewise, if it's an antidepressant, wh wh why are we using serotonin reuptake inhibitors when a serotonin antagonist is described as an antidepressant? You know, like, whoa, whoa, holy cow. And this this is from Wikipedia now about ritanserin. It was never marketed for medical use due to safety problems, but is currently used in scientific research. Oh, like the safety problems with the SSRIs where people lose interest in sex or can't get an erection after or kill, you know, freaking kill themselves or shoot up a school. That, that didn't have any safety problems, but retanserin, ooh, God, you know, one person kind of, you know, 
felt a little bit too good maybe i don't know jesus christ i couldn't find i couldn't find what the safety problems were but you see you see how backhanded and evil this whole system is how messed up this system is right and but listen to this now the it's currently being used in scientific research so again from wikipedia some of the safety liabilities that led to its discontinuation for the treatment of insomnia has led to its potential repurposing in the field of oncology, so cancer. Specifically, ritanserin acts as a potent inhibitor of uh, DGK-alpha. As such, it may be used to treat certain types of glioblastoma and melanoma. It has also been used as a reference compound to Identify putatively more selective and potent uh, DJK alpha inhibitors to treat these forms of cancer as well as possibly others. So just to just say melanoma, I think most people know that's skin cancer. Glioblastoma is actually the most aggressive and most common types of type of cancer that originates in the brain. And it has a very poor prognosis for survival. And ritanserin apparently can, can be used to treat that. The most aggressive and most common type of cancer in the brain, glioblastoma. Oh, it can also help you with your anxiety, your depression, your Parkinson's disease, and your freaking high blood pressure and your insomnia. But, you know, we can't really, we can't use it because there are safety concerns. It can cure cancer or treat cancer, but you know we have we have other stuff for that, like blasting you with radiation and giving you chemotherapy poison, so or you know butchering you up and cutting it out and stuff. So you know let's let's just park this one for another few decades, and then just to final one, there's quite a few of these, very interesting. Once you get into it, so cyproheptine sold under the brand name periactin, among others. This was a first-generation antihistamine, but it also has anticholinergic, antiserotonergic, and local anesthetic properties. It is also used as a preventative treatment against migraine. And, yeah, it's really, um, it just shows in 7 to 10 days, migraines really dramatically reduce, <clears throat> which again shows migraines probably due to too much serotonin so if blocking serotonin uh, fixes that problem it's no great mystery but um <clears throat> so this this cyperheptidine the reason why i wanted to mention mention it uh it can it i have to tell you let me pause for a sec so yeah so th this one although it was an antihistamine uh, you, you can't get it over the count, or rather, you can't get it without a prescription in the USA, but in other countries like Australia, you can. I think in the UK, you can. I actually got some of this to try it. So, but this cyproheptidine, people are using it, and there's studies about um, it's an anti inflammatory, prevents brain damage from stroke, uh, may help treat breast cancer because it's an estrogen antagonist can prevent or reverse soft tissue calcification, is a powerful antidepressant, um, effective for functional gastrointestinal disorders, can block cortisol excess due to hypoglycemia, can lower cortisol and um, uh, can treat Ebola infection, can lower stress, can lower TSH, you know, thyroid stimulating hormone, uh, Jeez Louise, it's like when people are using it for various things, like they're taking it and it's helping with their depression, like literally it's going away. Uh, in, in autism, I, I saw one, a couple of studies there, they've tried it. Uh, it has, uh, research shows it may have strong anti-cancer properties, um, can, may protect the, uh, from the damage caused by both ischemic and hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic stroke. <laughs> It's like, I mean, it can suppress a bunch of things like prolactin, growth hormone, aldosterone, cortisol, which are 
kind of stress hormones. You don't want too much of those. Just it can help with psoriasis. I mean, it's just a ridiculous amount of of positive things that this this uh, drug can do. It's an antihistamine, but it blocks serotonin also. And I was so fascinated by these anti-serotonin um, compounds that I actually I got some cyproheptidine um, myself, and I did try one uh, one one pill. And normally I wake up very early, maybe sometimes as early as four a.m. But um, I kind of didn't take it as an optimal day. I there was the one the one evening where I didn't have my you know table couple of tablespoons of honey before you know an hour before bed or two. Uh, I just didn't top up my carbs, so I noticed by uh, two hours after I was supposed to be asleep, I noticed I was still awake, and it was because I didn't top up my carbs, top up my li- liver glycogen, and. I I could feel it. It's I was alert and awake because my stress hormones were more elevated than normal cortisol and so on. So I didn't want to go and eat honey and maybe have a glass of milk because then I'd have to brush my teeth. And it was a whole thing. Um, I should have done that, but I instead of that I said to myself, "All right, I, I was gonna try the cyproheptidine on another day, but today looks like it's it's the day to try it." So I took it and finally fell asleep and I had the most interesting, very complex dreams. Very, it was the kind of dreams where you, I, I would wake up, turn over or not, on another side, fall back asleep and the dream would continue. It was like a saga, like the Lord of the Rings type of complexity of story and vividness. So very interesting. The problem, and this is, by the way, I'm not recommending you try this. Do not try this thing at home. I, I, um, I do a lot of self-experimentation and I normally don't, I stay away from drugs, but I researched this one uh, quite a lot. And it's nice to have in my, in my two, two box, I believe in case I need an antihistamine or a lower serotonin or reliably induce sleep. If you like you're changing um, time zones or something like that, or, you know, you need to stay up for whatever reason and you want to reliably sleep the next day. That's why I, I kind of have it, but mostly out of interest, I bought, I bought it to check it out. Um, so definitely don't do stupid things like this, like I do. But I, I need to test things out. Um, I, I love, I love testing things out, supplements, stuff. So that's that's my thing. But uh, the problem was I, I was very, I, I slept late, like eight, no nine, maybe nine or ten ish. I normally don't sleep, never sleep that late. <laughs> um, so it does work for for sleep. So I guess. Reducing histamine, that is the wakefulness neurotransmitter. Reducing that in serotonin, it really does help with sleep. I was very calm the next day, and I slept really well the, the night after. But I kind of, I I knew there was some interactions between other supplements and this. And actually, during the day after that, I was very, let's just say, sedated because um, some of my supplements kind of are GABA. Uh, uh, GABAergic, so that, that inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA. So I was very sedated and I had to do an interview and um, I kind of kept it together, but I was definitely not as, uh, I was a little bit more me- meandering than normal, but it was overall, overall it was cool. I'm actually looking forward to trying it again. Kind of feel like I want to try it today, but I'm also working on this book. I want to wake up early before everybody, everybody's up so I can actually work on the book uh, undisturbed. So I kind of want to be sharp and I'd rather skip sleep for a few months, extra sleep. I know it's not optimal, even though I'm writing a book about health. Writing a book about health is one of the least healthy things you will do, uh, unfortunately. But just that's just kind of my experience about these anti-serotonergic things and it's very interesting altogether. Um, I think I'll leave it there because hot diggity one hour uh, talking about mostly serotonin. Again, there's hundreds of studies I still haven't looked at, but the, you know this topic is broad. Moral of the story: you don't want to raise serotonin. I'd be wary of a pr- practitioner 
telling you to buy uh, to get five HTP to raise serotonin. They just haven't got the, gotten the memo yet. Not not that they're to blame for that. There's a lot of information out there. We have to know genetics, MTHFR, gut stuff, heavy metals, mold. So it's <clears throat> it's not their fault. But I'm just trying to inform some of my listeners that you know are are interested in health and want to protect their health and you will protect your health by boosting dopamine and uh keeping serotonin low that's all i will leave you with and finally just to kind of add if you do need help with your health whether that's to restore your health from a chronic or complex health issue or you want to optimize your health your diet your supplementation sleep um all those things i can help you with and get in touch with me, get, schedule a free consultation um, on my website. And, you know, let's get to know each other, see if I can help you out. And, yeah, uh, would love to work with you if you are ready to make that step. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll see you on the next episode.